Well, good morning again. My name uh, is Dennis Fay. I am one of the pastors here this morning. And um, I want to thank all of you who have been praying for me this week. I've been a little, um, can you hear me? Yeah, I've been a little under the weather. Um, that's a, a blessing I received from my uh, grandchild, Lincoln. Um, uh, but that's, that's okay. Um, it, it, it's worth it. Um, it's always a privilege to stand before you on a Sunday morning and share God's word with you. It is. Um, as many um, of you know, uh, as the executive pastor of this church, I only preach uh, a handful of times uh, each, each year. Uh, and that's, that's, that's okay. Um, but I, I, I tend to wrestle on the topic when I do preach. And for some reason, I really wrestled this time. Now, to be fair, um, I put together the preaching schedule uh, for the summer. And I, I did this three months ago, and I knew exactly when I would preach. I put myself for this particular Sunday, and I still wrestled with the topic. I had two or three different topics. I went back and forth. I just wasn't sure what to preach on because I want to be relevant. When you only get one Sunday, you want to make sure it, it fits and, and, and it's relevant. So several weeks ago, I was looking at the life of Charles Spurgeon. And I came across an article written by Mr. David Smithers, and it was based on Spurgeon's autobiography. And this, this article moved me in such a way that I felt compelled to share this article several weeks ago uh, with the men at the uh, pastor's prayer breakfast. And at the conclusion of the breakfast, Tim Wood, our prayer deacon, came up to me and said, hey, can I have a, can I have a copy of this? And two other men asked me if I would share this, this article with the church one day. I said, well, if I ever, ever got the opportunity, I would do that. Well, guess what? This is my opportunity. So I'm going to share this article, and I believe it will encourage you. But more importantly, I believe and I hope it will challenge you. Spurgeon, in his autobiography, described his gratefulness for being blessed with such a praying church. I always give all the glory to God, but I do not forget that he gave me the privilege of ministering from the first to a praying people. We had prayer meetings that moved our very souls. You see, Spurgeon regarded the prayer meeting as the spiritual thermometer of a church. His church's Monday night prayer meeting had a worldwide testimony for many years. And every Monday night, a large portion of Spurgeon's sanctuary was filled with earnest and fervent intercessors. In Spurgeon's eyes, the prayer meeting was the most important meeting of the week. It is here that many of us find ourselves in conflict with, with dear Mr. Spurgeon. You see, we love our meetings for preaching and praising, and yet sadly, Neglect those set aside for praying. One of Spurgeon's greatest concerns was that his people learn to truly pray. He taught his people to pray, doing so far more by his example than by any preaching. People heard him pray with such reality that they became ashamed of their own mere repetition of words. 
And throughout his entire ministry, many hearers remarked that they were moved by his preaching, but yet still more affected by his praying. D.L. Moody, after his first visit to England, being asked upon his return to America, did you hear Spurgeon preach? He replied, yes, but better still, I heard him pray. A close friend of Spurgeon's commented on his prayer life. His public prayers were, were an inspiration, but his prayers with the family were to me more wonderful still. Mr. Spurgeon, when bowed before God in family prayer, appeared a grander man even than when holding thousands spellbound by his preaching. You see, Spurgeon fully recognized that the church's greatest need was not to have another prince of preachers, but to have more princes of prayer. One of his many published sermons expressed his feelings on this. He wrote, Shall I give you yet another reason why you should pray? I have preached my very heart out. I cannot say any more than I have said. Will not your prayers accomplish that which my preaching fails to do? Is it not likely that the church has been putting forth its preaching hand, but not its praying hand? Oh, dear friends, let us agonize in prayer. There's been much talk about pockets of revival swinging up in our nation lately. Many are saying they desire such revivals in our own local churches and cities. Yet, is it not the prayer meeting which is still most neglected? If Christ Jesus were to visit us today with real revival power, how could such a blessing be sustained where there's no groundwork laid in prayer? To merely exercise our words about revival and not our needs is hypocrisy. It is time to make the prayer meeting as crowded as our favorite preaching and praise meetings. It is then, and only then, that a true revival will come with lasting power. Wow. Wow. If you're not familiar with Charles Spurgeon, um, he pastored a church in London, England from 1855 until 1892. And he may have had the first megachurch. I don't know that for sure. But he would have two services on Sunday, uh, about 6,000 people per service. Right? Uh, pretty, pretty amazing. And over his career, he preached over six thousand sermons and over his 37 years of preaching listen he preached on prayer every 3.4 months do you think prayer was important to Spurgeon I believe it was right he just he didn't just talk the talk he walked the walk so guess what I'm preaching on this morning Prayer. prayer thank you David I am so before I go there would you allow me to pray Please bow with me. Father, we have seen the effects of prayer in this church, in this body of work. So we thank you for the privilege of prayer, but more importantly, we thank you for the power of prayer. Father, I pray that I would do your words correctly and powerfully. I pray that I would speak well. I pray that I would touch hearts with the words that you've placed on my lips and my heart. Father, as we worship you this hour, may our worship truly be acceptable to you. May you be glorified. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So, exactly what is prayer? Can you describe prayer to a non-believer? Okay? I've heard prayer described simply as communicating with God, which is correct. But to say that prayer is simply communicating with God is a huge understatement. I think it oversimplifies the action. Prayer is so much more than merely talking to God. Prayer is the, listen, prayer is the deepest desires of our very soul being laid bare to the creator who made us. Prayer is our, is our way of coming into an intimate relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. Prayer creates in us an amazing awareness of just how close God is and how easy it is for his children to get to the throne of God. Listen. Prayer is the only way for an unbeliever to recognize and ask for forgiveness of the sins in his or her life. And and prayer is the only way for a person to confess those sins and accept the salvation that God has offered so freely through his son, Jesus Christ. It's only through prayer. Prayer is how the believer brings the anxieties of his heart to the feet of our Lord. And prayer is the ultimate way that a believer can show his or her thanks for what God has done in our lives. Prayer. So for most Christians, prayer is something we're quite familiar with, isn't it? But I wonder if we, if we become familiar enough with prayer, or is it possible, is it possible that we have become too familiar? What do I mean? Many times prayer has become so familiar that we're not earnest enough in it. And other times we feel so inadequate and unlearned with prayer. But regardless of your circumstances, I think we could all agree we can improve our prayer life. I know that I can. Dr. Um, Adrian Rogers, the late Uh, Dr. Rogers, was quoted with these thoughts on prayer. He says, the greatest problem we face is not unanswered prayers, but unoffered prayers. He goes on to say, tragically, many of our prayers are so vague that if God were to answer them, we wouldn't even know it. Wow. As you study the life of Christ, it is quickly evident that he was committed to prayer. He had an unhindered relationship with the Father. He was constantly in communication with his heavenly Father through prayer. And not surprisingly, we can find prayer described, explained, and illustrated throughout the entire Bible. I believe the most prolific demonstration of prayer in the Word of God is in the life of Jesus Christ. Um, We can see many examples of when and how Jesus prayed to God. And this morning, we're going to take a look at maybe the most important example of prayer. So our text today, again, I'm sorry it's taking me so long to get to our text, will be Matthew 6, uh, verses 5 through 13. So take a listen here. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, 
close the door and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I am sure everyone is familiar with this prayer. Now, the title in my Bible before that scripture is the Lord's Prayer. It's what we refer to that as the Lord's Prayer. Now, I personally believe the prayer recorded in John chapter 17 really deserves that title. But you know what? That's just me. Um, I'm not, and I'm not here to advocate we change the name, okay? But whether you call it the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, or my personal favorite, the Model Prayer, we, you just need to understand that this prayer came from Jesus, and it's a model on how one should truly pray. So this morning, we're, we're going to take a closer look at this prayer. We're going to start with verses uh, 5 uh, through 8. And these verses, we're going to see uh, Jesus address various attitudes of prayer, two of which are unacceptable. So in verse 5, we read, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Interesting that Jesus begins his prayer offered by hypocrites. And he says, who were they? These hypocrites were empty pretenders. They were actors. They were, they, they were stage players. All they wanted was to be recognized by man, okay? Um, they just wanted to ensure others would see them as they prayed and hear the words they offered. These men were not interested in getting, getting in touch with Jesus or even having their prayers answered. There's no depth. There's no substance to their prayers, all they were interested in just being recognized by man. They were pretenders. They were actors. Okay? They were there for show and recognition. Now, I want to make this really clear, folks. This is not a condemnation of public prayer. Please, it's not. Jesus is not teaching that we should never pray audibly in the presence of others. Public prayer has value. Matter of fact, public prayer has great value. However... Prayer away from the public view allows a person to focus more exclusively on God, more intimately on God, more personally on God. Look, public prayer can be an effective witness for the Lord. I know that. When offered from a pure heart, the right motive, we can display our faith before others as we pray. Amen. Continue to do that. But the difference lies within the motive. If we're offering a public prayer with sincerity, God hears it. But if it, if it is offered to receive the recognition and praise of man, and it's nothing more than mere words being uttered from our lips. 
This is obviously one of the unacceptable attitudes of prayer. And it says, but when you pray, when you pray, it says, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, the hypocrites prayed openly for the recognition of man. But Jesus instructs us to pray in your room. And I actually prefer the King James translation better, which says, go into your prayer closet and shut the door. I like that. I like, now look, we can pray, any, we can pray anywhere at any time, right? We're told to be in a continual state of prayer. Prayer isn't reserved for special occasions or, or, or special times. We can pray anywhere. However, there's a great truth I think we need to consider here. Jesus encouraged that we have a specific place in which to pray. A prayer room. A prayer closet, if, if you must. And what I believe Jesus is saying, if we just need that place where we can go and get away from the world where we're comfortable to pray. It doesn't matter where it is. You know, if it's in your house, it could be a special room. It could be the basement. It could be the garage. If you're a farmer, maybe it's your barn. It really doesn't matter. You just need a special place where you can pray and meditate unto the Lord. And I love the picture Jesus is presenting here. A place where we can shut the door from the distractions of the world. A place of unhindered, undistracted meditation and prayer. Where no one's watching, no one's listening, but you and the Lord. Do you have a place like that in your house? Especially moms with kids, do you have a place where you can get away? I hope so. It's really important that you do that. You know, for me, I pray in my little sunroom. Uh, I, I like it. I, I have a view of my backyard. I can watch the birds and the squirrels. And the squirrels eat all the bird seed. But it just gives me a nice view of nature. And when I'm there, my wife knows I'm praying and, I, and I'm meditating on the word. And she, she leaves me alone. It's my place. It's special. Again, there's nothing wrong with public prayer. But we all need that quiet time alone in that quiet place so we can have that quiet time. And so, and when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. What Jesus is saying, don't be like the heathens or the pagans, because they know nothing of genuine worship of the one true God. Keep in mind that they were known for praying before idols and offering prayers of a vain and repetitive nature. Again, I want to make this clear. I'm not condoning repetitive requests. That's different. Jesus prayed the same prayer three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there's nothing wrong with asking God for the same thing time and time. And again, the focus is the attitude of our prayers. And that's really the heartbeat of this message this morning is the attitude of our prayers. I think sometimes, well, I just speak for myself. Sometimes I 
pray out of obligation. Okay? You know, if I'm not careful, I will tend to recite the same familiar words over and over without any real zeal or burden in my heart. Let me give you an example in my life. Very thankful for all that God has given me. I always pray uh, before I, I, I eat, whether that's at home, whether that's out in a public restaurant, or even by myself, and I tend to eat lunch by myself, I, I always give thanks for the Lord. There's been times I've taken a seven-second prayer, and I said, what, what did I just say? What, am I really thankful, or am I just reciting words? And the Holy Spirit has convicted me to stop. Are you really thankful? Do this over again, and do it with some heart. Okay? Because prayer needs to come from the heart. And if there's no burden or desire, they will continue to resort to the same familiar phrases we use over and over and over. Prayer has to come from the heart. I also want to say that I do not have issues with taking as much time as necessary to pray. But when praying long with the motive that we want to impress man, then we're praying with the wrong attitudes, right? The wrong motives, and that displeases God. Attitude, motives. Jesus says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And this should help. Look, guys, our Heavenly Father knows every single need we have even before we ask him. He's God. He's well aware of every need, and he has all the resources to supply your needs. So all we need to do is to come before him and make our requests known, but we need to do it with the proper attitude and the proper focus. So how do we do this? This is what we're really, this is the heart of the message. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. Verses 9 through 13 gives us a model of how we should pray before God. This is a model. It's okay to pray this prayer, all right? But it, it, is, it, is, it is a model. It is a model. I, like you, have probably prayed this prayer thousands of times. I am not exaggerating. I learned this scripture when I was five or six years old. I prayed the Lord's Prayer every single morning and every single evening for 30 plus years. Do the math. Yeah, I was so good at this, I could recite this prayer in seven seconds. And I had no idea what I was saying until I, I changed my attitude on prayer. Look how this prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is stating the importance of starting our prayers with the awareness that God is our Father. When Jesus is teaching here, it's pretty radical, isn't it? Right? This is is radical teaching. God is is referred to only 14 times in the Old Testament as father, and then in a corporate sense as the father of Israel. But never, ever in a personal way. No one in the entire history of Israel had prayed the way Jesus prayed. It was radical. 
And even more radical than that was the word Jesus used for father. It was the common Aramaic word with which a child would address his father. The word Abba. Abba. Of course, everyone used that word, but never in connection with God. (laughs) Abba meant something like daddy. Daddy. But with a more reverent touch than I think we use it today. Maybe a better definition would be dearest father. You know, the problem among some Christians today is, a, is, is opposite of the ancient Jews. Some, some Christians are flippantly sentimental about God. And Jesus addressed both errors <clears throat> by addressing the prayer to our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. <clears throat> Excuse me. See, Father relates to the intimacy that one may address God as Abba. Or dearest father. But by adding in heaven, this is important, one is reminded that he is a sovereign God of the universe. So we may address God as dearest father or Abba father, but we should do so with the deepest sense of awe and wonder. He's God. He's God. So what does it mean to hallow his name? I went 30 plus years not having a clue what that really meant. Still prayed it. The word hallow means to set apart as holy, to consider holy, to treat as holy. A better word may be reverent. So when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're saying, Father, may your name be reverenced on earth as it is in heaven. You are ascending to the very heart of God to recognize who he is and what he has done for us. It's an attitude. But we are to pray not only to hallow his name, but for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a huge prayer request when you really start to dig into this. This is huge. You see, for Jesus, the kingdom of God as a priority. His message was, was primarily about the kingdom. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And over a hundred times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to the kingdom. The kingdom. So what did Jesus mean when he taught us to pray? For the kingdom to come. I believe when we pray that, we're asking God to rule in our own lives. Now, of course, we recognize the kingdom in its fullness will have to wait until the ultimate return of Jesus Christ. I I, I get that. You can put down the communication cards. I I fully get that, okay? All right, but... But we can experience an increasing manifestation of the kingdom in our lives today. Because Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And the Apostle Paul tells us that that we have already been transferred into the kingdom. Look at Colossians uh, 1.13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved son. 
So if we truly, truly desire God's rule over all men and all women at a future time, then it follows that we desire that he will work his will out in our lives right now, this very moment. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are acknowledging God's right to rule all people, including us. But praying not only your kingdom come, but we are to pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I am sure, I am sure that uncounted millions have repeated the words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, without the faintest notion of what God's will is. And perhaps even more alarming is that even more people have repeated these words without any intention of seeing that his will be done. Please, please remember this. When we pray this, we're not asking God to change his will or to bless your will. We're asking him to help you find and do his will in your life. As a matter of fact, we're even implying that our wills be overturned if necessary to accomplish his will in our life. To pray your will be done means we understand that prayer is not about God getting on our page. We are to get on his page. It is his will, not our will. It's not about you. It's not about me. There was a, um, a story of an overweight businessman who decided it was time to shed some excess pounds. So he took his new diet seriously, uh, even changing his driving route to work to avoid his favorite bakery. One morning, however, he arrived to work carrying a gigantic coffee cake. Right? His office mates lovingly scolded him, but he just kept a big smile on his face. He said, this is a very special coffee cake. You know why? Because God wanted me to have this coffee cake. Okay? Yeah. He said, I accidentally drive by, drove by the bakery this morning. If there in the window was this gigantic coffee cake. I felt this was no accident. This is, I prayed this. I prayed, Lord, if this is your will for me to have one of these delicious coffee cakes, let me have a parking space directly in front of the bakery. And sure enough, the eighth time around the block, he found it. <laughs> I don't think he was in God's will or God's page. So how is the will of God done in heaven? The veil was pushed back just for a moment so that we could get a glimpse, just a glimpse of how his will is done in heaven. What do you think you would see? Perfection. We would see the will of God being done without one creature out of harmony. The will of God is done in heaven instantly, constantly, and without failure. Until Jesus returns, that won't happen here, but we can strive for that as we pray for his will to be done. 
Moving along here. Verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. I think the most obvious meaning of this passage is that God would sustain us physically. Okay? Perhaps as Jesus is alluding to God's provision of manna, um, which was given every day in the desert. Um, basically, we must recognize God as our provider and rely on him to meet our daily needs. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we truly expect, literally expect God to rain down manna on us. Uh, I get that. But we need to understand, understand that it is God who makes our work fruitful. And it is God who will meet our physical needs. Sometimes he'll do this in a miraculous way. We've all had experiences on how God provided when we thought there was no way he could do that. That's who he is. Do you believe that? Are you trusting that he will meet your daily provision? I hope so. He will do it. You know, shortly after instructing his followers how to pray, Jesus talked to them about anxiety. Matthew 6, 25 through 27 says this. Listen to this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Are you? God will provide. But I think the key to these, these verses lies in verse 33. And this is really the key where it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you, right? Seek first. There, there's the motive. There's the attitude. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And maybe the hardest part of this model prayer is the next verse. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Christianity 101. We are to give and we are to seek forgiveness. Forgiving others that have wronged you and seeking personal forgiveness, forgiveness of sin. As you're praying before God, ask him to search your heart. Ask him to reveal any sin in your heart. If there is a person you need to do business with, friends, you need to do that. If he reveals a situation, you need to deal with it. Please. You know, the closer we get to God the more he will reveal our hearts for what they are. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because once you know it, you can deal with it. But listen, we commit sin one at a time. We need to confess sin one at a time. Don't do this blanket confession. Hey, Lord, forgive me of my sins. All right? You confess, you know, you commit them one at a time, confess them one at a time. And if you don't know what they are, ask God to reveal your heart. That's part of that quiet time. That's part of getting away, having that room to pray where you can get really serious with God. And you can, you can ask him those questions. I tell you, it's not always pretty, but it's good because he will forgive you. 
know, I have found that uh, in the counseling that I do, that when you tend to peel back the onion and, and to get to the root cause of issues, in most cases, it's a lack of forgiveness. I mean, it's a lack of forgiveness. See, we must seek and forgive others who have wronged us. Friends, if we cannot forgive others, don't expect God to forgive you. If you're harboring unconfessed sin, resentment, bitterness towards someone, please get things right immediately. This will affect your entire life, and it will definitely affect your time in prayer, but it will affect your entire life. Get things right immediately. Prayer is a time of self-evaluation, an examination to see the true condition of your spiritual heart. Don't be frightened by it. God will reveal it to, to you. Then you deal with it, and God will forgive you. I need to move on. Finally, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Please understand this. We have a great adversary, the devil, who wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy you at any cost. I believe the believer has three dominant enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Satan uses the first two to get at us. I don't have time to get into all of these, but please, Jesus tells us to pray for deliverance from temptation and the devil. Again, the devil, Satan, is out to destroy you. Be prayerful for protection from the enemy. The Lord's Prayer is a model of how one should pray. It's a model. But we need to have an attitude of prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean nonstop prayer. Okay, It just means constantly recurring. It suggests a mental attitude of prayerfulness, having a continual fellowship with God, and a, conscious, a consciousness of being in the presence of God throughout the day. I think this is what Charles Spurgeon had, and I think this is what Spurgeon cultivated in his church. what I want for this church. You know, I know that we are a praying church. I know that. Over the years, I've watched people come and go, and the people who've left for various reasons, when they would hit a crisis, they'd call us for prayer. Courtney knows that. She still receives prayer requests from people who haven't been here for many years. Why? Because they know you all pray. And and, and I I so appreciate that. I I, I just so appreciate that. 
We have pockets of prayer warriors all throughout the church. Every Sunday morning, we have a group who prays. Three or four people who pray in the morning. We have the men who pray for the pastors Sunday morning. Um, We have the men's prayer breakfast. Uh, The ladies pray sometimes on Saturday, uh, the Wednesday. There's a lot of prayer pockets. Many of you are prayer warriors, and I appreciate that. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. And I thank you for that. But is constant prayer really a part of our DNA as a church? The Bible says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. It doesn't say my house will be called a house of preaching or a house of music. My house shall be called a house of prayer. What if we embrace that scripture? No, really. What if we own that scripture? What if we believe that scripture, that my house shall be called a house of prayer? What if? What if we truly prayed for his kingdom to come, his will be done? What if we prayed for those who've wronged us? How would that transform you and how would that transform this church if we modeled that prayer and truly prayed that? My, um, my mother turned 88 a couple days ago. My father will turn 86 uh, this week, both birthdays in August. Um, they're not doing great physically but they're doing worse spiritually. I, I, I just don't know where they are spiritually. I've prayed for them, but I don't remember a- ever asking my church to pray for them. Now, I'm sure every single person in here, you have someone who you love very much who doesn't know the Lord. What if we pray for those people by name? What if? What if? GCA, we prayed for enrollment the last three or four months, and God answered that prayer, right, with 326 students. Praise God for that. But what if we prayed for the students by name for their salvation this year? How would that transform this ministry? What if we prayed for the Awana kids who don't know the Lord? What if we prayed for some of you who have a spouse who doesn't come to this church or doesn't, or doesn't come to church at all? This morning I prayed for a woman whose husband's not a believer. But what if, what if as a church we did that? We, we truly prayed. I mean, what if we tra- prayed for true revival in our nation? What if we prayed for a prayer meeting and I had to call Mike Rose and say, Mike, we need more chairs in here. There's not enough chairs. What if, what if, what if, if we did those things? When people would visit Spurgeon's church, he would take them down to the boiler room and he would show them this area where sometimes up to 700 people 
would be praying for the service every single Sunday on their knees. What if we filled S3 during every service just praying for our service? What if? What if? As the executive pastor of this church, I spend a lot of time looking at the finances. It's just part of my job. Here's the beauty of prayer. We don't need a line item on the budget to do this. It doesn't cost anything. We can do this right now. What if? People, what if? I need to pray. Please bow with me. Oh, Lord, what if? Lord, give us... Give us that heart to pray. Give us the confidence to bring all our prayers before you. Help us to trust your willingness to hear and respond. Enable us to pray, O Lord, according to how... Your good and perfect will is at all times. May our ultimate prayer be for your will to be done in all things. Teach us, Lord, so that we may stay in the center of your will. Ah, Father, we ask and pray these things in the worthy name of Christ Jesus. Amen.